Hi, I'm Matt Henry, and I'm the pastor at Missio Day Fellowship in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Very thankful that you found our sermons, and I hope that they are a way of encouragement to you in your Christian walk. However, it's important for you to understand that this sermon was given in my church's context and for the people that God has entrusted for me to shepherd. So if you're in the Kenosha area, I would encourage you to come on a Sunday and worship with the body of Christ here. And if you're not in this area, these sermons are a great tool for supplementing your walk, but they are by no means a substitute for the local church. So you need to submit yourself to a faithful Bible teaching church and shepherd in your area. Thank you. Well, I ask you to open your Bibles to a specific passage, and we've been working through Acts chapter 7, but we're not going to be doing that today. We're going to do it a little bit differently, and we'll see how it works. Last week, we considered the masterful speech by Stephan just prior to being murdered. And what we saw is a man who spoke an incredible speech under the greatest amount of duress. It's simply incredible for you to consider what you read there on that day with us, with me, when you understand that he was doing this under the stress of impending death. The fact that he could draw from his memory all of those stories and to bring them together, and not just bring them together in some bumbling manner, but in a tightly woven statement, is nothing less than amazing. And as I studied this week, I was reminded of a passage in John chapter 14, verse 26, where Jesus said to his disciples, uh, chapter 13, 14, 15, and 16 of John are one moment where he spent with all of his disciples just before he dies. And these are his last words to them. And in John 14, 26, he looks at his disciples and he says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said. And I really believe that that's what you're seeing in in Stephan at that moment, is during that moment in which he is probably very aware that his life, if not on the line, is actually going to be forfeited. And you can imagine how that might distress you, distract you, cause you to freeze up instead By the Holy Spirit, this man was emboldened and his mind was sharpened in such a degree that he might be able to speak these words. To be honest, as I read it, I was wondering what would I do in that same moment? And perhaps you might ask the same thing. Have you so prepared yourself now that in that time where you were called under great duress to give testimony, have you so stored up? the word of God, that the spirit will be able to bring it to remembrance? Or have you kept yourself in a state of ignorance? I exhort each one of you in the name of the Lord that you be a man or woman who is storing up the word of God in such a way so that in that time that you're not stumbling and grasping, but rather you're at peace as the spirit draws to your remembrance all that has been written. Understand that speech was done from memory. He wasn't given a week to prepare like I have with a sermon. And in that speech, he recounted the glorious work of salvation that God has done for Israel. And the way he did it was by using these various individuals 
who were saviors God sent for the sake of Israel. We, we looked specifically how he talked about Joseph and then Moses. His point, though, is very sad, if you recall, because Israel, he showed, has a history of rejecting those whom God sends that they might find salvation. That throughout the history of Israel, he has sent various people, and as those various people have come, the prophets have proclaimed things, saviors have been raised up, Israel instead turns away. And of course, the greatest example of that is the essence found in the person of Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, the one, in fact, to whom everyone was pointing toward. All of the Old Testament ultimately found its end and purpose in the coming of Jesus Christ. And they rejected him. They murdered him. They put him on a cross. And he died. And yet God raised him from the dead. And so what I'm going to do now is I want to talk to you over the next couple of sermons over the doctrine of salvation, this idea that that Stephan is dealing with the nation. I want you as I, as Christians, to remind ourselves about that simple yet glorious doctrine of salvation. So we're going to do what I'm just calling a flyover. There are many opinions on the issue of salvation. We're not lacking that. But seldom do we give uh, keep in mind the fullness of what is meant when we talk about salvation. In fact, as Christians, we have a bad habit of messing up the doctrine of salvation and not in ways that you're thinking most likely. I'm not talking about the kind of idea about salvation that somehow through your goodness you might earn your salvation. No, that, that's true that we do that all the time, and that it's also a false way and a false hope. No man, no woman will ever be good enough to earn their salvation. They will never be able to turn enough from their sin that they might curry God's favor. Salvation comes by God's grace alone. But what we tend to do is we tend to take one aspect of salvation, and then we read it into the fullness of the Bible, and we miss how big the subject of salvation actually is, the fullness of what it means to be saved. So what I've chosen to do is that we have a lot of material to cover, and so I thought I would put these up on the overhead, and that way, those of you who are good and strong in your finding passages in the Bible, I'm going to encourage you to still be looking these up yourself. The temptation is to be uh, simply looking at the screen, and if you do, I won't call you out, but if you know your scripture well, turn turn to these places because I want you, as always, to be making notes, maybe circling, pointing out what I'm, I'm observing in the text. But what I want you to be able to do is if you're somewhat weak with finding verses or you're not sure where even uh, certain books of the Bible are, instead of you getting lost in that and then you give up, I'd rather that you focus on the text and what it is that we are learning. And my goal is very simple in all of this. I want to somehow, by God's grace, to unfold for you the grandeur of what salvation is. I want us to begin to answer questions, questions like, who is it that saves? Who saves? How are we saved? Why are we saved? From what are we saved? And to what or to whom are we saved? Who saves? How many 
or how are we saved? How, why are we saved? From what are we saved? And to what or to whom are we saved? So hear me now, though. I want to lay this out right now, that though the world will raise up many so-called saviors, none shall stand in the end. All shall topple and all shall fall into the rubble of human history like the countless saviors of old. The powers of sin and Satan and death are so strong and so pervasive that only God can deliver you and I. And the deliverance he brings is so broad, so high, and so complete that it ought to bring us hope. A hope that is like a supernova bursting forth in our soul. So let me say it as bluntly as I can. Hear it well. Our God saves. Let me say it again. Our God saves. Let me say it one last time. Our God saves. And his salvation is to the uttermost. And so with that in mind, if that is true, let us attend our minds to the task of learning about so great a salvation which our God brings. So let me start out this way. This might bring to mind a sermon two weeks ago. To understand salvation, we have to use words. We have to study these words. We have to know what they mean. In the process, though, as we look at these words, these terms, I hope that I might be able to ignite a small amount of fervor and love for words in your own soul and the glory that's found in words, because words are a gift from God. In our society today, we have lost the value of words, the power of words, and so we have a very limited vocabulary, and as a result, everything is awesome, and everything is stupid. If you listen to enough people out in the world today, and maybe in your job place, and I trust it's not true, but perhaps within your own mouth, you'll hear certain terms that are just part of their sentence. They can't say certain things without repeating the same word over and over and over again. Because they have limited themselves with the power of what words can do, they are limiting their ability to communicate. Let me, let me do this by way of an example. Let's just consider a grumpy old man. Well, today we might just resort to calling him a jerk or a complainer or a whiner. That man's just a whiner. But consider the way your picture in your mind of this same man might change or evolve if you heard him described as a crank of a man or a cross patch or a fusser? Would it change yet again if you heard this man described as a murmurer as opposed to a mutterer? Then we could instead describe him as a killjoy or the ever-popular party pooper. But in other situations, that same man that we just called a jerk would be better described as a malcontent, a nitpicker, or maybe even a repiner. 
The one thing that we would all agree about this grumpy old man is that we would never call him an optimist, a Pollyanna, or a happy camper. All of these are just words, and yet every one of them carries a flavor. Every one of them carries a meaning. Every one of them creates a picture that becomes much more rich than simply, that man's a jerk, or he's an idiot, or he's stupid. And so what I want you to begin to understand is that God has given us words, and he has given us these words so that we might know them and understand them and, and explore them. What is hard for us is as we get older, our brains calcify, and we don't want to think and stretch ourselves, but I'm asking you over these next couple of sermons that you and I together stretch our minds to appreciate the vocabulary of our salvation. For God has given us a very rich vocabulary, and we need to know them. So, with that in mind, yes, um, I want you to understand that the Bible requires us to pull away from the tendency to think of salvation in a very small manner. First, in thinking that salvation and deliverance, when you think about it, you must keep in mind that it is not merely related to salvation from sin. If I was to ask you, what from what are you saved, most of you would focus on sin or maybe hell. Those would be very typical, and there's nothing wrong with that, but that is not how the Bible describes salvation. It's not merely those things. Wonderful though they may be, they are not all that God has saved us. That is not the idea of what deliverance or being rescued involves. It's not merely salvation from sin. It's not merely the idea of being justified, declared righteous before God through Christ. Rather, it's a very full, broad, and multifaceted concept. The second thing I want you to understand up front is in thinking about salvation and deliverance, you must resist the urge. Hear me on this. You must resist the urge of reading the New Testament backwards into the Old. We do it all the time, and we don't even think about it. It's done in so many different ways that at times we don't have enough, we don't have enough time right now to deal with how we might do that, but understand that it is pervasive and it is most pervasive in circles that you and I walk in and listen to within what's called the reformed camp of the church. We love to talk about the sovereignty of God and, and the way that God saves on his own in his free grace, and we work through all of that. But one of the tendencies within the Reformed camp is to take the New Testament and put it on top of the old, and now everything in the old gets reinterpreted through the new. Now, you younger people will not remember this. Uh, you who are, quote-unquote, older will. I grew up as a little boy always reading the back of a cereal box, and that's what you just did. You got your box, and you stuck it in front of you and read the same thing over and over again till that cereal box was thrown away. And some of the cereal boxes came with games. Do you remember that? And some of you do, and you're like, no. Um, and if you were wise, like I was, you would flip the box upside down and claim ignorance as you opened it from the bottom so that you could get to the prize immediately and beat out the other six brothers and sisters that were competing for that same glorious prize. 
And what was one of the things that you could get was this little piece of uh, cellophane or something like that. It was red. And then on the back of the Cheerio box, there was this blue, and it, and, and you couldn't read the words, but it had all this blue pattern. And if you put the red on top of it, it was like magic. Now you could know the secrets and mysteries of the universe. Now you were able to read it. Or if you had Cracker Jacks, they had the secret decoder ring. Again, little boys, girls, you don't know anything about this. You don't know the glories of reaching into the very bottom of a Cracker Jacks box and pulling out that cheap plastic thing that was going to unlock all the mysteries. But with that secret decoder ring, you were able to decode the real message. Beloved, that's how we treat the New Testament and the Old. We treat the Old Testament like it's a, a hidden message, and we will never understand really what's being said in the Old Testament unless we lay the new on top. And what I'm here to tell you is that's not right. It's not right. Theologically, you'll oftentimes say things that are right because the New Testament nonetheless is truth. And so as you read it backwards onto the Old Testament, you'll still be speaking truth because you're using the New Testament, but you never learn what the Old Testament is actually saying. You're never able to then hear the words of David or the prophet Samuel or the prophet Isaiah and marvel at the mystery of what they're saying simply by letting their words mean what they mean. And this is how we get in trouble when we talk about the doctrine of salvation, is that we, we block out whatever it's the text is saying, and we instead just insert New Testament meanings onto an Old Testament passage. And so we end up taking the Exodus event coming out of Egypt, and we turn it all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus and how Jesus will lead us out of enslavement to our sins and bring us home to the promised land called heaven. But that's not what it's about. It might be able to use that as an illustration, but that is not what it's about. Here's an example from David Platt, someone you might be familiar with. He points out that the story of David and Goliath is not a talk about how we can defeat the giants in their life, which he's right on. It's not about how we too can slay the giants of our life, such as sickness or financial troubles. And, and many a person has heard sermon after sermon about that. He says this though, and this is where he's wrong. He says the story of David and Goliath is about Jesus who defeats our greatest enemies of sin and death through his death and resurrection. No, it's not. You want to use that as an illustration of Jesus, fine, but that's not what that passage means. And when you do that, all you've done is taken a New Testament idea, laid it on top of the Old Testament story, and changed the entire meaning to something else. It sounds good because we all love Jesus and we want to know more of Jesus and see it, but behind it are some interpretational assumptions that can lead you into some very difficult places. One famous uh, professor out of Westminster who's now with the Lord, he told his students that until you can find Jesus in whatever passage in the Old Testament you are preaching, you do not yet know that passage. 
Which is why if you go into the Song of Solomon, which is a song of, of human sexual love and the purity of that and joy of that, it's actually now all about Jesus and his church. Is that what it's about? Is that what it's about? That's what I want you to think about. Every proverb is, is about Jesus. And so what I want to begin to do is to disabuse you of that tendency and have you understand that there's a major difference between meaning and application. The meaning of the text, there's only one meaning in every Bible text, only one. It has to mean what it means. Once you figure that out, then you can move to application. It might have many applications. You might be able to use it in multiple ways, but you'll never know if you're applying it correctly until first you understand its meaning. And so when we simply boil it down to Jesus, I know this sounds almost terrible, only boil it down to Jesus. We actually miss the glory of what's being there, being given to us. This all, the whole thing gets into a whole issue and a, a debate that goes on. And, and the two fancy terms are called Christocentric or a Christotelic perspective of the Old Testament. Now, that should bless you, and I, I should just give a benediction now and send you home to just contemplate the richness of those two words. A Christocentric is the one that you'll most commonly hear, and it's the idea that Christ is at the core, the center of everything in the old. A Christotelic says, no, he's not, but the whole purpose or end or goal of the Old Testament is to bring you ultimately to Jesus. Do you see the difference? One is saying that's what it's actually about, and the other one is, no, that's what it's pointing toward. We teach here that it's what it's pointing toward. So you can deal with the text and understand that here is an exodus, and God is bringing out his people out of enslavement, and you can deal with that, what it says, and then you can draw that through the Old Testament into the New and see where Jesus ultimately is found as the end of that. I just give those to you to consider. Now, let me just give you some examples of that. In Exodus chapter 15, verse 2, I want you to see how the Bible talks about salvation. These are just quick introductory examples. The Lord there, and notice it's all in capitals. When you see that, it means that it's actually the name of God, Yahweh. And it says, Yahweh is my strength, and he has become, become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will extol him. Now, you could take that out and put it on your wall and memorize it and think about all of it in relationship to sin. But here's what's interesting is the context of that. It's called the Song of Moses, and it's how God delivered Moses and Israel from the pursuing Egyptian army. It's a very different salvation than what you and I will read when we hear the word salvation. Notice also, if you'll look at that, that the Lord is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. It's not that he just gives salvation, but that Yahweh himself is the salvation, that when you have Yahweh, when you have God, he becomes your salvation. Then the next one would be in Second Chronicles 
It says, then say, save us, O God of our salvation, and gather and deliver us from the nations. Then notice that little word, too. To give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Again, you can hear that. You could almost utter that in the midst of some great difficulty as you're, you're, you're facing death or, or you see yourself in sin and you cry out and say, save me, O God of my salvation. And again, we reflect upon it in the spiritual sense from sin. But the context of this passage is it's a song or psalm by David where he gives thanks to the Lord's protection and deliverance from the many nations that are surrounding him who are his enemies. He is crying out, save me from them. He is not thinking about his sin. He is not thinking about the fact that I am a wretch and I need salvation in that sense. He, as God's anointed, the king of Israel over God's people, he sees the enemies around him, real physical enemies with real physical weapons, and he says, save me. But also notice the two, as I said, because it speaks to the purpose that this salvation that he's crying out for is not just so he can live longer, not so that he can finally get married, not so that he can maybe see his first grandchild. No, it has nothing to do with him. Notice it's doxological in its nature. Save me. Save us. Israel, so that we can give thanks. That we might praise you. One of the things uh, Grayson does on his blog a lot and uh, in the various memes he posts for his blog is he, in one way or another, rebukes people for not going to church. Would you agree? And, and you just keep poking the bear, and I keep encouraging you to poke the bear more and more and more. It is a grievous sin to withhold yourself from the gathering of the saints when you are able to gather. But one of the reasons is, for what were you saved? Why did God deliver you? If David is able to say, as he looks upon the enemies encamped around him, save us, rescue us from those enemies, so that we might give thanks and praise your name, did not God save you that you might gather and together give thanks and praise his holy name? Is it not so that you and I can remind each other of the great salvation, not merely from sin, but perhaps from sickness and enemies and difficulties? The number of times that you were rescued And you're able to give thanks together as we sing and we pray. Or how about in 1846, Psalm 1846, the Lord lives and blessed be my rock and exalted be the God of my salvation. I keep resisting, I won't sing it, but this is a song I used to sing with the prisoners. I really want to sing it, but you don't want me to sing it. Um, And as a jail chaplain, I would gather the men. I'd have three nasty-looking milk cartons stacked on each other, and I would uh, put my Bible on that. That was my pulpit. We would gather all of the men from the super maximum into the cafeteria, so we'd have a few hundred men, and they're all coming in, and this was one of the songs that we would sing. 
In fact, it shows up all over the place in people's hymnals and in their songs. And it's all about how God has saved us from our sin. But understand the context. Just listen to verses 47 and 48, what follows. He says, the God who executes vengeance for me and subdues peoples under me, he delivers me from my enemies. Surely you lift me above those who worship or rise up against me. You rescue me from the violent man. Again, David is reflecting upon the reality of violence and real physical enemies, and he sees God as the king of Israel, as being his deliverer, his salvation. It's actually built into the covenant relationship that God has. We won't go there, but understand that. Remember, anytime you see, if you use my translation, uh, the loving kindness of God, or maybe yours will say the steadfast love of God, it's, it's a, a Hebrew word called chesed, and it means in the New Testament, it's used as grace. In the Old Testament, it's a rich word that talks about that God has shown you favor or love by making a covenant with you. That God set his love upon the people of Israel by making a covenant with them. David uniquely had a covenant made. It's called the Davidic covenant where God established him on the throne. And it's through that covenant that he is able to call upon God to rescue him from his enemies. All of this is rich and it's all pulling. So what I want us to do is help you understand that what Stephen was pointing to when he was talking to his enemies, he was on trial and he's speaking about these various men that God raised up to be savior. It wasn't from sin. It was actually from other real specific and physical things. Deliverance in the Old Testament often is in the physical and it's very real to the people. It's from salvation from death through starvation, salvation from physical bondage or pursuing armies. So we're going to focus today on that Old Testament idea. And then Lord willing, when I come back after Grayson's sermon next week, I will develop this into the New Testament terms and how that enlarges and enriches that. So what I want to do today is just look at terms. And we will go as quickly as we can, and and I may make it, I may not, to the end. The first is the word simply to save, save salvation. So noun or verbal, it doesn't matter. It's just what you and I would say about being saved or salvation. In the Old Testament, the word is the idea of making wide. So the Hebrew word yasa, if you wish to know that, you won't help you any. But it simply means to make wide. Now, that doesn't help you much unless you've ever been in a tight place. Have you ever, I'm claustrophobic. I don't, you, you, you want to see violence get me wrapped up in some wrestling move where my knees touch my nose and I can't feel like I'm, I'll, I'll just take your eyeball out. I just, I don't, I don't even think about it. I'm, I'm like, get me out of here and I become exceedingly unkind. And so, in fact, just thinking about that, my chest kind of constricts a bit. So I'm not made to be a caver. I have no interest in that. Me and my daughter, one of my daughters, when we go down into some cavern, 
They always got to turn off the light and they always got to show you what absolute darkness is. I'm like, I don't need to. And they always do. And then the guy will just keep on yammering on. So this is what total darkness looks like. And, and absolutely, you almost can feel it. I'm like, no, I can't almost feel it. I can feel it. And me and my daughter, Becca, are holding each other's hand. I'm a full-grown man, and I have faced death many times. And I'm like in there thinking, turn it on now. And finally, after the invention of the smartphone, I'm the jerk that then just pushes a button and makes my screen come on like, there you oh, please turn off that light. No, I won't. I paid for this, and I have not, did not pay for absolute darkness. I came to look at the pretties, <laughs> right? That, when you get the light turned back on, and the weight comes off you, and you feel like you can breathe again, you know what I'm talking about? All of a sudden, making wide makes a lot more sense, doesn't it? You picture yourself constrained into a tight place, a, a prison. The walls are closing in. You're bound. You're being hung from above, with your arms above your head, and, and things have now become very, very tight. And now all of a sudden, you're out in the open. And the one who brings you to that wide space is your Savior. In fact, did you know the name Jesus is based upon this word? The Old Testament word for Jesus, if you didn't know, was Joseph. And the word is based upon, in the Hebrew, of a compound of the word Yahweh, the name Yahweh, God, our Lord, and the one who saves. Yahweh is our deliverer. And so for the Jew, there was so much truth built into that because they could look backwards, just like Stephen did to them, and show them time and time and time again that Yahweh delivered them from these difficulties. When you add to that the other title or name for Jesus, Emmanuel, it gets even more rich well, because Emmanuel literally means God with us. And so the essence of what Jesus then means is seen again. For the Jew, the presence of God among his people was that for which they longed. For them... The reason is very simple, that God, when God would once again come, remember, he left them, and Ezekiel is a horrible picture of the glory of God rising from the temple and exiting, and it's gone, and they go off into bondage. For hundreds of years, they're in bondage, and prophet after prophet comes and tells them, repent. There is coming one, the one who is the Christ, the anointed one that God shall raise up and he shall reign and he shall bring your enemies down and he shall bring you salvation and he shall draw you from the wide areas of the world and bring you back to your home. Repent. And then after they killed these prophets, he silenced himself for 400 years until John the Baptist. And in all of that, they had the prophets still saying that there would come one who is known as Emmanuel, God with us. And here comes Jesus, Yahweh is our deliverer. Why? Because when God is again among his people, they're saved. That's the beauty of salvation. So, Notice this, word, this verse in Exodus 14.30. It says, thus, remember what that word for Lord actually means, thus 
Yahweh saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. It's not hard to figure out what it means, is it? Yahweh saved Israel when? On the day when the Egyptians were pursuing them and they had to go through the Red Sea and then God closed the Red Sea up upon the, uh, upon the pursuing army and now they're just scattered dead being washed up. And it's just a testimony of God's salvation. How about this one in Psalm 54 verse 1? Now follow this one carefully. Save me, O God. How? By your name. Then he says it again, this is a parallelism, and vindicate me by your power. So the name of God here is the same as the power of God. The power of God is the name of God. Think about that in the New Testament when we are talking about in Acts how they were healing and casting out demons, right? And they were doing it all in the name of Jesus. It's not just a magic word, but it is that they come in the power and the authority of Jesus, his reputation. And this is a beautiful passage, beautiful words. And you can see yourself applying this to yourself as a sinner. And that application would be good and fine, but that's not what it means. The meaning is about when Saul was actually seeking to kill David. It was, again, a very real salvation. His, his life was on the line. And David just says, save me. By your name and power, save me. Vindicate me. That salvation does not just merely rescue my life, but vindicate me. Bring me to the place where they, the people understand, not only that am I saved, but I actually was righteous. I was doing what was right. I was obeying my Lord. Have you ever been falsely accused? Have you ever faced the whispers and the accusations of people around you and, and you're bearing them up? But it hurts, doesn't it? It hurts really bad when they're false and they attack you. And there's times where you just cry out to the Lord, vindicate me. That might not be the words you say, but what you're saying is, Lord, let them see I'm not the person they're trying to make me to be. My conscience is pure before you. And one of my favorite passages is the book of, well, actually the whole book is Zechariah. Notice what it says. It says, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Why? Why should Israel rejoice? Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, most of you should recognize that passage, right? And how it is taken and shown to be speaking of Christ. It speaks about that time when Jesus entered, it's called the triumphal entrance into Jerusalem and he's seated on the colt and the people are laying down the palm fronds and they're rejoicing in their coming savior whom they then crucified. In Matthew 21, verse 5. But what's interesting is when Matthew quotes this, that verse, and says it was fulfilled, he leaves out some words. He leaves out the part that refers to Jesus being just and with salvation. Why? 
Well, likely because that was not going to be true yet of Israel, that he was not yet their Savior. Yes, in Jesus was salvation, but not for them. That that generation in Israel was much like the generation that came out of Egypt. Though they were saved physically from their oppressor, they were not saved spiritually. And it says very clearly in the Bible that they died in their unbelief over the year, 40 years of their wandering. In the same way, Jesus was not these people's Savior. Some he was, but to the nation he was not. They would die in their sin. And so when you read the context of Zechariah 9, you find that it's actually looking forward ultimately not to the time of Christ's death or his entering into this world in his incarnation that we celebrate with Christmas. It's not looking toward his resurrection after his crucifixion, but most of what Zechariah 9 is looking at is when he comes again and he brings final, true salvation in every sense of the word. And in that day, he will bring Israel into salvation. So the point is very simple, but it's also very important to save. That word yasa in the Old Testament is a very, very broad term, and it speaks of any or all sorts of salvation. The next term that I want you to hear is the term to deliver or rescue. Um, The Hebrew, again, if you're into that, is natsal, natsal. There's another couple of words, malat and palat, similar sounding, but they, all three are used to describe the idea that we use in the English to deliver or rescue. And they capture that idea. The first, natsal, carries the idea of being snatched away. You would, you would use it and understand it as a parent. Every time you walk out with your uh, brain-dead child to go across the parking lot and they're ready to walk in front of the oncoming car because they're too busy looking for the puddle and you grab them and you yank them back, you're like, dude, pay attention. That's it. You can say, I not sold you. You can say thank you. That's all it means. It means to snatch snatch away and bring into safety. And so you can see that in Exodus 3, verse 8. So I have come down to deliver, and this is Yahweh speaking, I have come down for what purpose? To deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land. You can see in that second phrase, actually clause, to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land, even though it doesn't use the word save, you can see it, the concept, can't you? They're taking them out of bondage and into this broad place, this good and spacious area, to a land flowing with milk and honey. This is simply the reality of God hearing the sighs and the groans of Israel under the harshness of Egypt that he shall be the one. He shall be the one who would snatch them from the very power of Egypt, the most powerful nation of the time. He would snatch them from the grasp of Pharaoh, for only God could do that. But he is also the one who would then finish that by bringing them into the land a promise. In Psalm 22, verse 8, commit yourself to Yahweh. Let him deliver him. Now, I want you to notice the pronoun changes. It's strange, so pay attention. 
Commit yourself to the Lord, or Yahweh. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, because he delights in him. So what is going on? Well, it's actually a very beautiful passage. It captures the heart of God. But it also captures the heart of David. In the context here of David, he is wondering in Psalm 22 whether God has forsaken him. So he's just like you and I. Difficulties are there. Enemies have come. He's being accused and pursued. And there's not been any respite. There's not been any salvation. And so he's wondering, has God abandoned me? Has he forsaken me? I'm not asking you to tell me. I'm just saying, have you ever felt that? Have you ever wondered at some point, maybe I sinned so greatly that I'm done. I'm gone. Here I am again, back at that same sin. Here again, I am saying the same words. And I feel so far away, has God forsaken me? Well, that's what David is asking. He's under attack from the outside of Israel with enemies. And he's being attacked from the within Israel from enemies. And God has not delivered him. And yet he's God's chosen king. But notice these shifting pronouns. He starts with yourself and then him. What's he actually doing? Here's what's really cool. By the time he gets to verse 8, he's actually beginning to counsel himself. So he's talking to himself. He tells himself, he says, David, commit yourself to who? To Yahweh. Some of you would do so much better in your life when you start to feel that God has forsaken you and I'm done. If you just slow down, and first thing you need to say is, Matt, you need to commit yourself to Yahweh. You need to commit yourself. And so he speaks to himself. Then he literally steps away from himself and now He is over there, and now he refers to himself as him. And so he's now saying, let Yahweh deliver him. Let Yahweh rescue him, because Yahweh delights in him. It's a beautiful passage of of self-counseling, because you know you're Lord. And so you're human, David was, and you have the doubts and you wonder what's going on. You need to be rescued, but you give up and you throw it away because you haven't learned to speak to yourself. Instead, you say, commit yourself. Just commit yourself to Yahweh and and then pull back and begin to talk about yourself in that way. People may think you're strange, but you do it in the car and so they don't really know. Listen to what he sounds like by the time he gets to verses 19 and 20. Just listen here. He says, by the time, so in the first few verses, you've forsaken me. In 8, he's shifting and he's saying, no, commit yourself to him. And now by the time he gets to verses 19 and 20, he says, but you, O Yahweh, be not far off. O you, my help, hasten to my assistance, Deliver me, there's that word, deliver my soul from the sword, my only life from the power of the dog. In other words, he now appeals, instead of saying, you've you've forsaken me, he's now appealing to his Lord. And he's saying, come and snatch me away from those who seek 
my harm. Now, I want you to turn with me to the next passage. Isaiah 50, verse 2. Isaiah 50, verse 2. If you're not sure where that's at and you have your Bible, flip it open to the middle and you should be in the Psalms and then just start turning back or forward technically um, and you'll quickly get to Isaiah. It's a very large book. Isaiah 50. Someday I, I, I think I'll do a Bible study through the book of Isaiah, I keep wanting to, but then I look at how big it is, and I wonder if I would stay alive long enough to take you all the way through it, (laughs) much less you would want to stay with me for that length of time. But in Isaiah 50, verse 2, hear the words. Why was there no man when I came? When I called, why was there none to answer? Is my hand so short that it cannot ransom? Or have I no power to, and there's a word, to deliver? Behold, I dry up the sea with my rebuke. I make the rivers a wilderness. Their fish stink from lack of water and die of thirst. Yahweh is saying, do I have no ability to deliver you? O Israel, what's he talking about? Well, go backwards to verse 14 in chapter 49. And Zion said, the Lord has what? Has forsaken me. And the Lord has forgotten me. They're doing the same thing David does. The difference is David then is a man of God and he counsels himself until he turns again to Yahweh. Here, the nation of Israel is this, He's forsaken us. He's abandoned us. This is the complaint of Israel, but it's not actually legitimate. It's actually the whining of those who are in a hard place due to their own sin, their own choices, their own foolishness. And so Isaiah points out that it's a result of their sin and not because God has forsaken them. Some of you in this room perhaps are starting to wonder if God has forsaken you. I've been doing this long enough both here and in the jails to have heard untold number of people say, yeah, well, I asked God to whatever, and he didn't, and they're done. My wife died of cancer. I'm done. He took my baby. He took my job. He took my reputation. He did this. He did that. He failed me. And so they just assume God has turned from them. And so they're like, yeah, well, then I'll turn from you. And this is what Israel did. Isaiah takes Israel as a whole then. Come back to chapter 50. I just quickly took you through the essence of what's going on from 14 to the end. And what Isaiah does is he takes Israel as a whole. This takes some effort in your brain to think here, okay? So think, Israel as a whole, the whole of the nation, not just in that time and space, but Israel as a nation from beginning to end, and breaks it down between Israel as a whole, and that's described as like the mother, 
and her sons, which is any specific generation of Israel. So right now, we would be the son, like as when we're talking about the church. But then we could also talk about the church as a mother, and that's talking about the beginning of the church to the end of the church. So keep that imagery going on, and then understand what he is saying. So the mother is Israel in general, and the sons are basically current and future Israel. And what God is doing is affirming his faithfulness to Israel for the sake of the sons, for the sake of these generations. And so in verse 1 of verse chapter 50, he says, thus says Yahweh. Where is the certificate of divorce by which I have sent your mother away? Or to whom of my creditors did I sell you into slavery me? Behold, you were sold for your iniquities, and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. They're saying, you've forsaken us, you've divorced us, you've cast us aside, you've sold us into slavery. You did this, you did this, you did this. He's like, "Um, no, no, I didn't. Show me the certificate of divorce. Show me it. Bring it out. If that's what you want to accuse me of, bring it and show me. Well, there is none. He's like, I never divorced you. I never divorced your mother. That's not why you're in captivity. That's not why you're being assaulted. That's not why you're being dragged away. Why are they in captivity? He says, because you chose sin. And my covenant relationship with you as Israel was, if you obey me, I will bless you and protect you and expand your borders. And when you disobey me, I will constrict those borders and you will go into captivity. It is you that have left me, not me leaving you. In fact, I'm still with you. I'm still with you. All you need to do is repent. And so what verse 2 actually does, beloved, is that it functions as both a rebuke and a word of hope. The rebuke is that he has sought them time and time again, and they reject him. Why was there no man when I came? When I called, why was there none to answer? That's the rebuke. It's not like you're lacking prophets. In fact, I can apply this to some of you. You have heard time and time and time and time again the way of salvation, the call to come, to repent, to believe, to follow, to put away and to turn and become a Christian, to begin to see Christ as your hope of salvation, to see Christ as your Lord and Master, and you get up, you yawn, you stretch, and you go home, and then you wonder, God, he's not real. God has forsaken me. I asked God to do this. I asked God to do that. He's done nothing. And God says, I'm still here. It is you. It is you who abandoned. John and I, John the Elder and I, we've talked over the years of people who, when they leave the church, and and I'm not talking just leave our church and go elsewhere, but they leave the church, they apostatize, they break away, and they say, we're, we're done, I reject God. And then they become bitter because somehow they're not invited over for dinner. Facebook friends stop. And then you'll hear the complaint. 
well, you guys never even talk to me anymore. You never come over. You never do this. You never do that. And John, John says it in only the way John can say it. He's like, we're still here. Every Sunday we gather in the name of the Lord and we sit, we pray, we take the Lord's Supper, we sing, we hear the word, we're here. It's not that we have abandoned you. You've abandoned the church. And not only have you abandoned the church, you've abandoned God. God is still here, beloved. And he calls people to come and to believe. I ask you again, would you? Would you today? And so he says that even in this rebuke, though, he calls them again. It's a very painfully but beautiful, painful but beautiful passage especially to any of you right now who are parents and you've watched your child walk away. You know the pain. He says, is my hand so short that it cannot ransom or have I no power to deliver? There's a kindness there where he's saying, I am able to save you. Come to me. There are parents in this room who are filled with the ache of rebellious children who have turned away from the God of their youth. And, and the parent is just saying, I would, if I would give anything to reach out and just deliver you out of it, but you cannot. You can only point them to Christ, whose arm is never too short to save. And in there, we see the idea of what salvation really is. It's, it's both physical in nature and spiritual in this passage. It's a full salvation in that way. It, and it's something that's very hard for us to grasp as Christians. Well, then we come to the two other terms, palat and malat. They're very similar uh, terms, and they speak of being delivered. In their verbal form, they're only used, though, in New Old Testament poetry. So there are very specific word, or words. They're the kind that poets like to use. And poets like words that you and I don't use, but poets love them. The first speaks of slipping away, and it's found in Job. And it talks about sparks of fire leaping away into the air. That's the word. Uh, they leap out into freedom from the fire. But in Isaiah 49, 24 to 25, it says, Can the prey be taken from the mighty man or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? Surely, thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty man will be taken away and the prey of the tyrant will be rescued. There's the word. Why? For I will contend with the one who contends with you and I will save your sons. The answer never is going to be found within the power of our own self. It will always be found in Yahweh. He's like, you're right. He is a mighty man. Yes, that is a great nation. Yes, Babylon is powerful beyond description. But I gave them the power, and I shall fight for you. Just turn. There's the idea of of a way of escape that's made open to you, a way to find life. And he says, it's me, Yahweh. That other term, palat, is, is similar. It speaks of the idea to escape to safety. 
So in uh, 2 Samuel 22, verse 44, you all have also delivered me from the contentions of my people. You have kept me as head of the nations. This is David talking. A people whom I have not known serve me. You have kept me. You have delivered me. It's this way of escape. The contentions of my people are around me and I've been able to escape, slip away. In Psalm 18, verse 3, I call upon the Lord, or Yahweh, who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. Again, this is another passage where David is referring to physical, actual enemies who want to capture him. And David sees that the way of escape is truly found in Yahweh. And so we now have dealt with the idea of save and deliver. Let's turn ourselves to the next and final word for the day, redeem. Now, one of the terms, there are several terms in this, uh, this English word. And one of the terms is about how a a close relative would be responsible in the Old Testament to redeem a relative from danger. In the New Testament, this is picked up in the incarnation. Now, I think you may have missed it. I didn't emphasize it properly. A close relative rescues or delivers or redeems you from danger. Close relative. And this gets picked up in the New Testament as Jesus, our Redeemer. Why is he our Redeemer? Because he is our eldest brother. He is our older brother. That's how the New Testament conveys him. Not only as Lord and Savior, but he's my big brother. And he's your big brother. And he redeems you. You're the little kid who's always doing stupid things, right? And he's the eldest brother who comes and rescues you. He's the one who redeems us out of our enslavement to sin. And so here in the Old Testament, this picks up into the idea of the kinsman redeemer, that close relative who would redeem the blood that was shed. When you would be killed, your kinsman redeemer in Israel's day was responsible to go hunt down the one who killed him or killed you, and kill him. And in doing so, redeem you and your death by shedding his blood. So when applied to God, what you actually see is God standing between the one who seeks to harm his people and redeeming them from their slavery and difficulty by having his own blood shed. This is what I I always ask people, when they come in for their uh, baptism interview, and, and I say, so tell me, what do you believe about Jesus? And, and they're nervous, and they're like, oh, and, and it's test time, right? And it's like, no, we're just going to talk. But they're like, well, I believe that Jesus died for my sins. And I always ask the same question, so be ready for it. What does that mean? What does that mean? What? What? What does that mean? You're right, He did. He saved me from my sins. Why? Well, he died on the cross. Why? For my sins. What's that mean? Well, he died for my sins. I understand that. I'm tracking with you. What does that mean? And we talk about it frequently here because I have proof in my office that you don't always track. (laughs) 
The word for there, that little Greek, that little preposition for that we just kind of pass over in the Greek is a very important one, huper. He died in my place. He took my sins. He is the substitute. He is my redeemer. Does that make sense? I am the one dead in my sins. I am the one under the sentence of death because of my sin. And my redeemer comes. He doesn't just purchase me. He takes the debt upon himself. Another term used in this is very close in that meaning, but it has a slightly different image that also is helpful to us. It speaks of when a person is under the sentence of death and the ransom price is paid, and he's redeemed and therefore saved. So it's used, though, in interesting ways in the Old Testament. When With Israel, it took on a very specific meaning due to their salvation out of Egypt. So when God redeemed Israel, he did it by killing all of the firstborn of their enemies. Remember that? The angel of death came, and if you had the blood of the lamb over your doorway, he would pass over you, hence the word Passover. But all of the ones who did not, the angel of death would take the firstborn, both of humans and even animals. That was the price of redemption. You keep my people in captivity, I will redeem them out of captivity. And you know what the price for that is? I will kill your firstborn. Whatever sense you have that the God you claim to worship is a safe God means you simply don't know your God. And you need to get to know him. He is a God who saves. And he will do it by destroying the enemies. In this room, you are either one or the other. You are his, or you are his enemy, and you will face that wrath. So here's a person under the sentence of death, and the ransom price is paid, and he's redeemed. One of the most frequent uh, statements by God to Israel in the Old Testament is to remember that they were redeemed. So in 2 Samuel 7, verse 23 And what one nation on the earth is like your people Israel, whom God went to redeem for himself as a people and to make a name for himself and to do a great thing for you and awesome things for your land before your people whom you have redeemed for yourself from Egypt, from nations and their gods. This is the idea of a major focus of the prophets of that future day when God would once again redeem his people from all the corners of the earth and he would reign. In a quite painful way, we read of this in our next passage. Here it says, For I am the Lord, I am Yahweh your God, who upholds you, upholds your right hand, who says to you, Do not fear, I will help you. Do not fear. Now listen, do not fear, you worm, Jacob, you men of Israel, I will help you, declares Yahweh, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Here he speaks words of life with a smack upside the head at the same time. I will help you, you worm. You're the worm, but I'm the redeemer. 
Our salvation has never and never will come because of our worth or our goodness. We're sinners, rebels because of God. But ever and always we are saved. Two more verses and then we'll bring this to a close. So the ransomed of the Lord will return and come with joyful shouting to Zion. And the everlasting joy will be on their heads. They will obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing will flee away. That's what the ransomed. And then the last one is this word. It's actually the word pada for ransom. It's only used once in the whole of the Old Testament to speak of ransoming or redeeming from sin. It's right before you up there on the screen. Psalm 130, verses 7 and 8. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is loving kindness, and with him is abundant redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. And so when we try to take that spiritual redemption in the New Testament to the old, we end up actually losing the holistic sense of what God has redeemed us from. That promise of salvation is not just heaven, it's not just forgiveness of sin, but it's actually a redemption out of every single aspect of the human condition due to sin. Beloved, you are far more saved than you understand, far more saved. By God's grace, when I come back, Lord willing, in a couple of weeks to pick back up here, I will be able to show you how that salvation is the same in the New Testament as it is in the Old. It's not just about your sin. It is this glorious total salvation and why we are to wait expectantly for the return of the Lord, for on that day we shall be fully saved. Or as Ephesians 4.30 says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God for by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let's pray. So, Father, I pray that you would help us with that. Our eyes are quick to wander over to other false saviors, and I pray that you would open our eyes to the glory and the riches of what salvation really means, the terms, and that we might become lovers of the words so that we can see the beauty of what the Word of God actually says. I pray that you'll put it upon all of our hearts that we might rest in the fact that we have been truly redeemed and saved that we have been snatched away, and in that we find rest and hope. For those here who are in rebellion, those who have not heard and believed, I pray that the Spirit would rest upon them in such a way as to draw them and convict them of their need of Christ, and that in the power of the Spirit they might cry out for salvation, for you are the God who saves. Bless us as we prepare to go home, I ask in your Son's name. Amen.